it is a privilege to speak and to open God's word. So if you have 2 Peter open, I want to make reference to a couple things as we begin this morning. We're continuing the study in 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2. And last week, Scott talked about how we have a sure faith. Eyewitnesses, Peter says in chapter 1, he was an eyewitness. He's writing as an eyewitness. You can't get better than that. He's telling us what he saw. And then the end of chapter 1 is where we're going to kind of springboard into chapter 2 because the last verse says the prophecy, that is what we hold in our hands right here. It says, the prophecy came not by the will of men. So this Bible, this word of God that we hold here, the second point about how sure it is, it didn't come from man. Men didn't sit down one day and go, I think I'll write a book. But it says, holy men of God, this is chapter 1, verse 21, spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Think about it. Carried along. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Theopneustia, God breathed. It's as if the writer was sitting behind him, God was blowing. And so what the writer wrote was exactly what God intended. However, God never violated the personality or the experience of the writer. They wrote from their personality, their experience, their background, and yet God behind was breathing, carrying them along. What a beautiful picture of how we got this word. And so this is the word of God. And so Peter comes off of this great lofty idea that we hold in our hands the word of God breathed from God himself. And then chapter 2 begins with the word but. But. And he begins a topic that's difficult. Difficult. But. Before we get into that, back in the late 1800s there was a an author, and his name was uh, Charles Sheldon, wrote a classic, and I would encourage you to read it. We've read this to our kids when they were young. It's called In His Steps. And Charles Sheldon coined the phrase, what would Jesus do? Some of you have seen the bracelets, WWJD. Well, that began back in the late 1800s, 1895, I think he wrote the book. And here's the thrust. He said, in situations of life where you're faced with a decision, ask yourself, well, what would Jesus do? What would he do? But when you ask that question, there's another question that you have to ask yourself. Because, see, you can't answer the question, what would Jesus do, if you first haven't answered the question, what did Jesus do? Think of my logic here. You have to know what he did do to know what he would do. What would Jesus do? Well, what did he do? You have to study the life of Jesus to know what he did to know what he would do. Are you following me here? Peter uses the exact same logic. Here's what he does. When he delves into the topic of false teachers... 
He begins in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, but there were false prophets among the people. There were. And then he says, even as there will be false teachers among you. So he says, as there were before, so there will be now. So if you're asking the question, how do I identify a false leader, a false teacher, a false prophet? How do I know one? you got to go back and see what they did back then. That's what Peter's saying. Study the Old Testament, study what they did, and you'll know what they do when they're among you. Same logic. Now, Peter was writing to Jewish people who knew their history. All the Jewish kids were taught their history growing up. We're kind of at a disadvantage because if I were to ask you, name a false teacher from the Old Testament. and What did he do? How did he walk and how did he talk? We would probably go, uh, I don't know. Well, then how are you going to identify one today? If you don't know what they did then, how are you going to know what they do now? Peter assumes that his readers, who are Jewish people, know their history. And so he just says, just as there were before, there are going to be now. Assuming they know their history. And they can pull up stories of false teachers and then apply them to today's situation. So here's what I want to do. There are plenty of examples of false teachers in the Old Testament. But Scott only gave me one Sunday. <laughs> so I'm going to pull up two. I'm going to show you two false teachers. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at what they did. See, there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new. And then we're going to look at today and we're going to go, ah, that's what they do. Here's what they did. Now here's what they do. And you're going to be able to identify them as they walk among the churches. The first one, I'm going to pull up a couple here. Zedekiah, you don't have to look at these. I'll just give you the brief history. In 1 Kings chapter 22, verses 1 to 53, we have the story of Zedekiah, the false prophet. Let me give you the background. Solomon was the king of Israel during its apex, the greatest time in history for Israel. In fact, the queen of Sheba came and said, after she saw the riches and the glory and the, the success of Israel, she said, the half wasn't even told me. Wow, she was impressed. Solomon dies and leaves his son Rehoboam to succeed him. But something happened in 2 Kings, or yeah, 2 Kings, 1 Kings actually. And that is that the people did not like Rehoboam. He sought the advice of the wrong people, blah, blah, blah. Split the nation. You had 10 tribes in the north that followed a guy named Jeroboam, two tribes in the south they called Judah that followed Rehoboam. You can read it all. So here's a split nation. After the apex, now it's split. Ten tribes in the north, two in the south. Syria was a country that continually, continually invaded Israel. They were a thorn in the side of Israel. And there's a king in the north, and his name is Ahab. And he's not a very good guy. He's one of the wicked kings of the north. Syria left 
for a short time, did not attack Israel. And Ahab, in his reasoning, says, now's a good time to go. He didn't use the word whoop them, but now's a good time to go after him. He's got some, the king of Syria has some distractions at home. He's got some other issues going on. Now's the time. Let's go get him. So he devised the plan. Ahab, in the north, calls Jehoshaphat in the south. Sends a messenger down, says, come on up here. I got a plan. Ahab and Jehoshaphat. Normally, the kings of the north and south didn't get along too well. But in this case, there was a plan. Ahab says, let's unite forces, go after Syria, and get them while they're down. Let's kick them while they're down. We can do away with this enemy. Sounds like a good plan. Ahab says, and by the way, Zedekiah, my high, my, one of my prophets, he said it's a great idea. Let's do, go for it. Zedekiah gets the opinion of other prophets. Now, 1 Kings calls them false prophets. They all say, yes, great idea. So as Ahab has all his false prophets saying, go for it, Jehoshaphat, who is a godly king in the south, says, is there no godly prophet that I may inquire about this plan? So he sends word back to Judah, is there a godly prophet that can come and help me with this decision? And a guy named Micaiah, like Micah, but with a few extra letters, Micaiah comes forward. Jehoshaphat says, Micaiah, should we go to battle? Should we link forces with Ahab and go to battle and go after the Syrians? And Micaiah says, let me inquire of the Lord. Notice the difference. He inquired of the Lord. He goes to the Lord and says, Lord, is this something that we should do? And you read in the passage that the Lord says to Micaiah, no, this is not of me. Do not do this. So Micaiah comes back, here's Ahab sitting, here's Jehoshaphat, and uh, Jehoshaphat says, what did the Lord say? And Micaiah says, no. At that point, Ahab turns in, gets, goes into a rage. That's exactly what you always say to me. You always are against me, he says. Well, yeah, I wonder why. He's an ungodly king, and then Micaiah is a godly prophet. But he was outshouted and outspoken. I think I wrote that there. Micaiah is outnumbered, outshouted, put in jail on bread and water. But Micaiah says something before they leave. He says, if you come back here to Ahab, if you come back here, then you will know that the Lord has not spoken through me. You see, in Deuteronomy, Moses had said, one of the chief characteristics of a prophet who is a true prophet is when he speaks, it comes true. Deuteronomy 13. Well, guess what? They go to battle. Now, Ahab, he's kind of a uh, slimy kind of guy. You know what he says? Jehoshaphat, you wear your royal robes in battle. I'll go disguised as a soldier. What do you think his reasoning for that was? So sure enough, Jehoshaphat wears his, godly, his robes. Ahab goes disguised as a soldier. And in the battle, it says that a soldier randomly shot an arrow in the sky. Now we know there's nothing random with God, is there? And that arrow went up in the air, came down, 
and struck Ahab right between the shoulder blades. And Ahab was in a chariot disguised as a soldier. And by the end of the day, he had bled to death and died. They lost the battle. They ran for their lives. What Micaiah had said came true. If you come back here, then God has not spoken to me. Dire consequences. Ahab dies in battle. The king. See, every Jewish person knows that because that's, that's a huge event. That a king of Israel dies in battle as a result of Zedekiah's false prophecy. When they came back, God slew Zedekiah. And he died the next day. Dire consequences. What do we learn from this? Because as I said, you'll know what false prophets do if you look at what they did. What did they do back then? They elevated man's reasoning above God's. It was a perfect time to go against Syria. Reason with me. You go after him when he's distracted, when he's got other things on his mind, you catch him by surprise. It's a great military tactic. Problem is, where was God in this? You see, man's reasoning was more important than God. You see, the proper thing is God, and we subject our intellect, and we subject our reasoning to God. That's what Micaiah did. He went to the Lord in prayer. Lord, what do you want us to do? Forget the reasoning for right now. Let's go with God. What do you want us to do? And then we'll operate from there. So the first thing, first example of false prophets that we see, man's reasoning above God's. Now that's what they did. Now, let's go over here. So what do false prophets do? Well, they do the same thing they did back then. Man's reasoning is more important. Now, at the risk of you all saying, Pastor Paul said, listen to me carefully, okay? When we here at this church believe in what we call expository preaching, that means we take the word of God, and it's like when you show up at a motel with your luggage, you put the luggage down on the bed, and you start unpacking the luggage, you put away the socks in the drawer, the, sh you know, the shoes. You unpack. That's what we believe is the proper way. You take God's word and you unpack it. And you subject your reasoning to what God's word says. You say, God, teach me from your word. There's another way of preaching that isn't necessarily ungodly. I'm not going to say it's ungodly, but it lends itself to error. And it's called topical. That is, we start with a thought. And we go, okay, let's look for verses that support what I believe. Grab this, grab that. You see, my reasoning is more important. What I've come, my conclusion is this. Now, God, if you fit into that, great. If you don't, I'll put that aside and I'll find another verse. Now, I'm not saying that every pastor who preaches topically is a false prophet. Don't get me wrong, please. But here's what I'm saying. When you elevate reasoning above God's word, you are, you are following in the footsteps of those in the past. And this is how far they went. Danger. That's all I'm saying. 
It is a danger sign of a false prophet. Now, I'll tell you how ridiculous this gets. And I know it, it may come across as funny, but it really is sad. Uh, one of my uh, sons who is, was studying for the ministry said, Dad, you gotta hear, you got to read this or follow this video. Get this video, listen to it. It's really what he called gnarly. <laughs> I'm not into that language, but this is gnarly, Dad. I listened to it. It was a church, and I'm not going to tell you where. You'll need to know. A church was doing a series on organization, how God is an organized God, and they were trying to be relevant to the culture. Seeker-friendly, let's not uh, say anything that might turn anybody away, but let's just talk about these topics that will draw people in, and we'll get more people. So they were dealing with the topic of organization, and the guy says, God wants us to be, and this was a sermon, God wants us to be organized, there's the reasoning. And I'm thinking, wow, what kind of verses are they going to use to encourage people to be organized? He says, number one, he's talking to the men. Men, we're going to talk about organizing your garage. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, where are they going to find a verse about organizing your garage? First passage he goes to is when Jesus shows up at the temple, makes a scourge out of these cords, and drives the money changers out of the temple. He says the first point that God teaches us is you got to clean it all out. You see, Jesus saw there was clutter in the temple, so he had to clean it out. I'm going, oh my goodness. Is that taking a verse and a passage and forcing it to support? <laughs> Second point, he goes, then, after you've done all that, you cleaned out your garage, completely cleaned it like Jesus did. He was a great organizer. Second thing, feeding the 5,000. Jesus said to the disciples, sit them down in groups. So he said, here's what you do. With all the stuff you have out there, Organize it into groups. See, that's what Jesus did. He was a great organizer. After that, I turned it off. I, I was somewhat disgusted that here's a pastor of a pretty well-known church doing a series on organization and forcing God and God's word to align with this reasoning. Now, there's nothing wrong with organizing your garage. Don't get me wrong. And I probably need to, too, like any of you guys. But guys, please don't use God's word and force it. But that's what they were doing. You see, if God's word didn't fit with Ahab's plan, he rejected it. Micaiah, go to jail. You don't belong here because you're interfering with my plan. Let's look at another one. This is a guy named Hananiah. And in Jeremiah 28, let me give you the history here. The divided kingdom has gone on for many years. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and others have prophesied that because due to their sin, due to their rejection of God, God was going to destroy Jerusalem. In fact, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, had prophesied destruction. So you find that in various places. Along comes a guy named Hananiah in Jeremiah 28. 
And he goes, the word of the Lord came to me. And it's not going to be a long destruction. Now, the, it had been predicted it would be 70 years. Remember, Daniel went to Babylon and others. He says, it's only going to be real short. In fact, the king that they take is going to come back. Everything's going to be cool. And he got quite a gathering, quite a following to his new message. So Jeremiah heard Hananiah and he goes, wait a minute. I've been prophesying about this destruction of Jerusalem and this captivity and different things. Hananiah's got a little different and his isn't like mine. So he goes to God and he says, God, what's going on here? What's going on? Hananiah, who's a prophet, is preaching this, this new message and it's not in line with uh, at least what, I re what I've been prophesying. God says to Jeremiah specifically, what Hananiah is preaching is not true. And God makes a very, you can read it there in the passage, God makes a very interesting statement. He says, because his message is not consistent with what has already been revealed. Ah, interesting. So Jeremiah goes to Hananiah and says, you're not preaching. Your, your message is not from the Lord. And he rebukes him publicly. Dire consequences. Within a day, Hananiah had died. God took him out. You see, God isn't messing with these kind of things. He, this is serious stuff. Okay, so that's what, Hananiah, that's what happened in the past. Let's talk about over here. If that's what they did, what do they do? What does a false prophet do today? Because there's nothing new under the sun. You know what they do? They introduce something new. This is new and exciting. Perhaps it's a mystery that nobody else has ever known, but I figured it out. <laughs> I got these gold tablets, you see. You know where I'm going with that? This is something new. What do we need to do? You need to take the message and do exactly what Jeremiah did. Take it and compare it with that which, was, which has been revealed. Is it consistent with what God has always said? If not, throw it out. I'm going to brag a little bit on my wife. She's not here today. She, got, she was all ready for church, got all dressed, and then she got a call. And she, they needed her in the emergency room, so she's there working. But one day, we had these two guys show up at our house with white shirts and a black tie, a little badge. And I, liked it. I talked to anybody, so it's not like I'm going to reject people. I saw them coming. I saw them get to the gate. I said, hey, Kitty, you have some visitors. And so she says, let's go talk to them. Let's go. This is a divine appointment. Now, I know from talking to different individuals like them that they're not there to find out the truth. You know that, right? They're there to tell you what they believe. They're there to sell you a product, basically. And on our way to the gate, again, I'm bragging on my wife. She says, let me handle them. <laughs> now, if you all know Kitty, she's a no-nonsense being a nurse, she's a no-nonsense. This is the way it's done. 
let me handle them. I'm like, Kitty, go easy, go easy. <laughs> so we're walking. We get there. Brilliant. Brilliant. We say, hey, what's going on? Oh, we're in the area. We're just here talking to people. And I got some books if you're interested in. Oh, yeah, what's that? Well, it's Pearl of Great Price, Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants. And, oh, yeah, what's that all about? Well, these are, listen, these are some newer, newer <laughs> messages from God. Of course, my wife pipes in and says, well, we're Christians and we believe in the Bible. And they said, oh, well, that's great. But these kind of help fill out the message. They were using all these interesting words. My wife, in her brilliance, says, guys, let me tell you something. I am a comparison, comparison shopper. If eggs are on sale at Safeway, I get them at Safeway. If milk is on sale at Walmart, I go to Walmart. I get the best deal I can. Let me tell you guys something. The Bible says in Romans 3.23, and Romans 6.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. And as a, as a person, I stand convicted before God. But, John 1.12 says, but as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the children of God. I received what Jesus Christ provided for me on the cross, and I'm a child of God, and you know what? I'm going to heaven. I have the Holy Spirit living in me, and I go, I'm going to heaven to be in his presence when I leave this earth. Here's what she said. I've got the best. I found the best deal. Now, do you have anything better to offer than that? And they went, I think we better get going. <laughs> Seriously, they looked at their watch. I think we better get going. What did she do? She put her finger on a false prophet who said, I've got something better, something new. And she said, but if it's not in line with what's already revealed, I don't want it. Because I already got the best thing. I hope you all understand, false prophets are trying to do that. They're trying to sell you on an inferior product. Do you hear me? They're trying to sell you on something inferior to what you've already got. You've got the word of God breathed by God himself. The prophets carried along, wrote this as God led them. Never forget that. So what do these prophets do? They elevated man's reasoning above God's word. God's, God was inferior to what man wanted. Secondly, and just in this one, what did they do? They brought in something new. And they had, it had to be tested against what was already revealed. Um, there's a couple other ones here, and I'll just bring these out. There's other condemnations, and you can read all these, but let me just mention. In Deuteronomy 13, Moses said, Any prophet who leads people away from God is a false prophet. Anytime a prophet leads you in a direction away from God, consider them false. Given to addictions, Isaiah said. Now, not all of these qualities or characteristics are in every false prophet, but they're the red flags. Jeremiah talked about the immorality among the false prophets. And Micah talks about them being in it for gain. 
So let's go back to first to Second Peter. Now that we have a little background on what these prophets did, look what look how Peter says, as they did, they will be doing. Let me read. But there arose false prophets, verse one, among the people, even as there will be false prophets, teachers among you, who will secretly bring in damnable heresies. You notice the word secretly? It's not always very evident. Secret. Even denying the Lord that bought them. Now, that's an interesting point that Peter makes. See, we're talking about believers here. Theologians believe that what Peter is referring to is actual believers who are misguided and go off into... We're not talking about some foreign religion, Buddhism, Shintoism, you know, whatever. We're talking about people who have been redeemed. The word here, bought, is the word redeemed. Bought out of the slave market of sin, agorazo, out of the market. They were slaves to sin, and God, with his, Jesus, with his precious blood, bought them out. And look where they're headed. And we're going to talk about the process here a little bit later, but just keep that in mind. We're talking about believers, and that's why it's so subtle. It's so subtle and deceptive. Verse 2, many will follow their pernicious ways by reason of whom the way of truth will be evil spoken of. Peter says they're going to get a following. Verse 3, and through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you. Wow, those are big words. But basically, here's what they're doing. They're using the words. They're very persuasive. And they see people as an end to a means. They may start out on the right track. And I was thinking the other night, soon to be Dr. Swenson here, could very easily talk to you about math because he's a math professor. You know what a vector is? An arrow, vectors, lines. Where they meet, if you have two vectors, they're, they're touching, they're close. But if they're just a little bit off, you got one vector going this way. If this vector is not exactly the same, if it's just a little bit off, the further they go, the wider the gap. And that's what happens, that these things begin pretty close, maybe even touching. Maybe they're a believer who's just misguided, but you see when they're a little bit off on any of these areas, the longer it, it, it lasts, the further away the gap is, the further the gap. So we keep, let's keep reading here. God says in uh, verse 4, there's great condemnation for these. The severity. And I'm, I'm going to talk about the three examples that Peter gives. These false prophets are going to be dealt with severely. Both of the cases that I mentioned here, not only did the king die, but the false prophet died. God doesn't take this lightly. And so Peter uses three examples. And I want to just talk about them quickly. Verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels that sinned, 
I cast them down to hell, delivering them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. What's that talking about? Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, passages that talk about Satan cast out of heaven. Satan was Lucifer, the shining bright one, the, the crown of God's creation as far as the angels. But when Satan said, when Lucifer said, I will be like the Most High. It didn't take but a nanosecond for God out of heaven. And with him, all the angels that ascended to the same. Out. What's that all about? Pride. So see, if the angels and Satan himself, who exemplified or exhibited just a, a little bit of pride, the created one saying, I'm going to be like the creator, see, there's no way a created can be like the creator, but in his pride, he thinks he can. God says, you're out. So if God didn't spare the angels and Lucifer for a split-second thought, he's not going to spare these false prophets. This is how severe this is. Look at the next example. Verse 5. He didn't spare the old world. What was that? Well, that was the world before the flood. But saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Think about that for a minute. God didn't spare the entire world. What was the problem going on at the time of the flood? Well, we're told in the book of Genesis that everyone was living as they wanted, and it says God repented that he had made man. So it was pretty bad, pretty bad situation. Now let me give you, I was a math teacher, so I like numbers, but one time I was doing a study in Genesis, just looking at the genealogies, and you're all probably going, ah, gag me, genealogy, this guy begat, this guy begat... How exciting is that? No, but I was counting. I just did a study for my own. I just thought, you know, I never realized this, but I, I never knew how many generations here and there and, you know, this and that. Did you know that from creation till the time of the flood is only 1,600 years, 1,600 years? Did you know that Adam lived 930 years and he died? Did you know that Noah's grandfather lived during the time Adam was still alive? What does that tell you? Think with me. We often think, well, creation and the flood happened way down here. Wait a minute. Adam, the man who experienced life in the garden, complete innocence, freedom from sin, and saw the results of what sin does in our life, lived up until the time of Noah's grandfather. He was around that whole time, grieved at where the world was going. Now I'm using my sanctified imagination because he was a godly man. I'm sure he was telling his descendants, his kids, his grandkids, his great-grandchildren, telling them, guys, don't go there. Don't go there, because I know what sin does. I saw firsthand what sin did to this world. And then comes Noah. And that verse calls him a preacher of godliness. 
of righteousness. And we know that it took Noah 100 years to build the ark, and the whole time he was building the ark, he was preaching. Not one person listened to him. Not one out of all the inhabitants of the earth listened and responded to the preaching of Noah. Wow, talk about a discouraging preacher. How would it be to preach for 100 years and not one person <laughs> turns their heart to God? And you had Adam living this whole time too. And, and, Cain, and Abel, no, Cain killed Abel, he, did, he died. Cain and all the descendants, there must have been godly people living, not listening to the godly counsel of these great patriarchs. Here's the point. When Noah was alive and preaching and they had heard the witness, what was the problem? Why is it that verse 5 says he didn't spare the world? Here it is. They rejected the word of God. They rejected the word that was given to them, whether through witness of first-hand witnesses who knew what sin did, or Noah who preached and preached and preached and preached his heart out. They rejected. God says here, if God didn't spare them for their rejecting the word, he's going to take care of these false prophets. God sees this as a severe, severe affront to his character. Next one. Six, turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning them with an overthrow, making them an example to those who should live. And delivered Lot, vexed, here it is, with the filthy lifestyle of the wicked. What was the problem of Sodom and Gomorrah? It's clear here, their lifestyle. Not only did they reject God, but they rejected the clear order and commandments of Almighty God. They lived in perversion. They lived the way they wanted to. Look what they tried to do to the angels that went in to get Lot's family. You read it. I'm not going to mention it. You read it. The only ones that got out of Sodom and Gomorrah alive were Lot, his wife, and his two daughters. What happened to his wife? She got halfway out, turned back. You see, physically she left, but her heart was still back there. That's what that perversion had done to the entire city and even infected Lot's wife, even though it says here he, he was vexed, he was grieved with the lifestyle. And as Lot and his two daughters run for their lives and end up in a cave, you read it. Lot's two daughters were also infected with the lifestyle. They got pregnant with their father. They made it out alive, but the effect of what that city stood for hit them, in, hit them at the very core. So what was God vexed with, or Lot vexed with? What was God upset with Sodom and Gomorrah? They rejected the basic commands and order of God. They said, we'll do it our way. So here's what Peter says. These false prophets, who you know how they used to act, are going to act this way among you. But we have a God who is not to be trifled with. And he's serious about this stuff. He's serious about pride. right? He's serious about rejecting his word. And he's serious about man just saying, 
I'll do whatever I want to do. I don't care what God's commands are. Three examples. And God says, I'll take care of them. Let's keep going. Verse 9. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Now, I have that circled in my Bible because when I was reading this years ago, I thought, that doesn't fit. It, see, it doesn't seem to fit there. Because God's talking about these wicked, wicked cities, people, and how false prophets are going to be punished. And then he goes, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. I'm going, oh, wait a minute, I thought we were talking about false prophets. Well, I think Peter, here's what I think. I think Peter, as he's writing this, led by, the, by God, obviously, is presupposing a question that might be in the minds of the readers. And maybe you're sitting there going, well, I'm not a false prophet. Guess this whole passage has nothing to do with me because, hey, I'm not a false prophet. I'm not a false teacher. He's talking to other people. Well, Peter says, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. That's everybody. That's you and me. We're all faced with temptations, aren't we? And you know what I think he's trying to do? He's trying to link all of us to the situation of the false prophet. We could all be in that boat. We could all do the same thing, the false prophets. Have you ever trusted your reasoning over God's word? Ah, then you're walking in the footsteps of the false prophet. Have you ever gone, over, gone after something new and pizzazzy and exciting that maybe doesn't line up with the rest of revealed scripture? then you're walking in the footsteps of the ungodly. And he says, you know what? It has to do with temptation. The Lord knows how to deliver the ungodly out of temptation and reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment. In other words, punishment, reserving the unjust for that, that's God's business. You and I, you and I do what? We deal with our own temptations. You let God handle these. Look how he handled them in the past. Let him handle them. Let's be careful not to judge. Let's be careful not to quickly come to a conclusion. Let God take care of it. But you and I have the responsibility to take care of the temptations that come in. Abraham Lincoln said this, I think, one time. You can't stop the birds from flying overhead but you can stop them from making a nest in your hair. What was he saying? There are things that are coming and going, but you don't have to dwell on them. You see, when you allow those things to dwell, what do they do? They begin to take you off in a different direction. I was listening to a sermon one time by Erwin Lutzer. He used to be the pastor of Moody Church. And I can't say it the way he is. Erwin Lutzer just has a way of explaining things. But he was talking about Acts chapter 5, where Ananias and Sapphira, remember that story? They sold a field, and they brought the money and laid it at the disciples' feet. Because in the early church, there were a lot of needs. And people were bringing offerings. Now, Ananias and Sapphira didn't have to bring anything. 
There was no quota. There was no amount they had to bring. It was all voluntary. The issue was not what they brought. Remember? The issue was they sold the field, and they brought the amount, laid it at the feet, and they said, what? This is the entire amount that we sold the field for. Not true. That was the problem. It was a lie. The amount, they could do anything they wanted. Erwin Lutzer said this. He said, you know, I bet when Ananias and Sapphira were sitting down eating breakfast that morning before they went to give the money, they probably weren't eating and going, let's see how wicked we can be today. Let's see how ungodly we can be. Licentious. Let's see how putrid we can act today. I don't think they did. Here's what, I th here's what Erwin Lutzer said. I think they were sitting there eating a breakfast going, you know, I think it's a good cause to give some money to the disciples for the care of the people in the church. We sold this field, and he just used the example. We sold it for $1,000. How about if we just we give 500 Good idea, Ananias. Yeah, let's do that. And you know what? I think we could really impress people. Why don't we just tell them that was the full amount? Good idea, good idea. Take the money. Because in Acts chapter 5, listen to this. When Peter confronts Ananias, Ananias walks in, leaves the money, and he says, this is the entire amount we sold the field for. It's yours. Peter, Peter, the one who wrote this book, looks at Ananias and he says, why have you allowed Satan to fill your hearts to lie to the Holy Spirit? Do you hear what he's saying? You have allowed Satan to fill your hearts. In other words, Satan has been put a thought in, another thought, another thought, and just like those two vectors that should have been like this, you veer just a little bit, and you've allowed those thoughts to cook. You've allowed those thoughts, and look where you are now. And boom, just like that, Ananias struck dead. You go, whoa, that's pretty severe. You see, it was secret. It was little bit at a time. And Peter nailed it when he said, you have allowed Satan to fill your heart. He's been putting in little thoughts, and you haven't taken care of them. Is it any wonder why Peter says here in verse 9, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. Listen, the first thought that comes into your mind from Satan himself, what do you do? You deal with it. You deal with it. You leave it in there, and then comes another one, and another one. You're going to be following in the footsteps of Ananias. So in this passage of the severity of how God is going to deal with these people, he goes, take care of the temptations. Don't let them go. It comes in, identify it, and say, out. It comes in, there's a little thought, oh, you know, we'd look pretty good if we told them it was the whole amount. Oh, and I don't know what their motivation was. We're not told that Ananias and Sapphira were 
in it for pride or whatever. We're just told they did it. But I imagine it had to do with some kind of, you know, people are going to think, wow, Ananias and Sapphira are pretty, pretty good. Wow, they're on fire for God. Look what they brought God. Pride, who knows? So let me read verse 9 again. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. Take care of your temptation. 1 Corinthians 10, 14 says, There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted, above that you're able, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape. Listen, every time a little temptation, little thought comes in, because those birds are flying, and it lands in your hair, you go, out, get lost. You don't belong here. Get rid of it. God allows, God gives you a way of escape. Ananias and Sapphira didn't take the escape that was provided. And they allowed their hearts to get filled. I'm going to close with a with a, a story. And I, I want to be careful when I say this because I, I want to be careful that you all don't think I'm pointing fingers at other people. But my wife and I used to live on the East Coast, and I was a teacher there, and there was a radio program, that, a radio station, that was the only Christian station back in the 80s. And it was a great station. It was a good station. They preached the word. They had good music. And I used to listen to it on the way to work, back and forth. We had it on in our home. And it was out of Oakland, California, but they had a a station in Camden, New Jersey, so it was local. Pastors would listen to it. And, but there was a guy in charge of the radio station. He was a self-taught theologian, which means he studied the word, and he had his series where he would preach, and he had other preachers, Chuck Swindoll and others on, you know, the regular programs. But he had his own program on, and he was spot on as far as salvation, as far as the doctrines of the Bible, he was right on. But as time went on, and I listened to him for probably about 10 years, I noticed something, and other pastors noticed something. He began to say in his teaching, well, now this is what it says, but there's a deeper meaning. There's a deeper meaning. And let me explain. And he went on into what we call allegorical interpretation, meaning... Yeah, it says that, but this is what it means. And when he started out, some of it sounded good, but he just started getting further and further and for, further into allegorical teaching to the point where pastors in the area and others were saying, can't listen to this guy anymore. The name of the station was Family Radio, not to be confused with Family Life Radio in Tucson, Dr. Carlson, some of you might know that, or American Family Radio in Mississippi. That's a different one. This was family radio. Pastors put the word out. Don't listen to, to Harold Camping anymore. He's, he's gone off the deep end in his preaching. And we had friends that were like gung-ho. Yeah, what Harold is saying is right. He started out right but as the vectors went this way, further and further apart. Nine years ago, 
2011, and I can remember it. I'll tell you why I remember it. He made a prediction. He said, you know what? God has led me through the study of his word. You know, a day with the Lord is as a thousand, a thousand as a day. And he added up all the numbers and, and this many, this means this and this and this. He pinpointed the day the Lord was coming back. That's how far he got. He pinpointed it to May 21st, 2011. Now, I remember that because I was going on a mission trip with Heights Church, and we were going to Mexico, and the 21st fell on a Saturday. So I said to Kitty, if Harold Camping is right, I'll be in Mexico, see you in heaven, as I left Friday morning. See ya, see you in heaven. Well, guess what? The 22nd, late at night, we came back. We're still here. <laughs> Harold Camping went back to the drawing board the next day. And he spent some time in solitude. Now, he had made a prediction that the Lord was coming back that day. They had put up billboards. He had gotten thousands of dollars in donations. People sold their houses and got ready for the Lord to come back. Sold their cars. See how much influence this guy had? He went back to the drawing board, and he said, came out with a statement. And I was interested in what he would do, because... You know, if he had lived during the time of Moses, he would have been stoned to death. Because if a prophet says something and it doesn't, they're gone. But we don't live in a theocracy today, and so Harold is safe, I guess. Here's what he said. I miscalculated. But now I realize the Lord's coming back October 21st. Guess what? <laughs> October comes another mission trip. But this time, October 21st, was on a Friday. But he had predicted the Lord was coming back at high noon on the 21st. So we leave the Heights parking lot at 6 in the morning, headed to Mexico. I'm in Mexico at noon. But I did say to my wife, Honey, if the Lord comes back, I'll see you in heaven. <laughs> Guess what? We came back on the 23rd. We're here. What in the world happened? Let me tell you something. What happened in the interim? And you can look it up. Look it up on Wikipedia or whatever. Harold Camping. A month after he made that, well, a month after the May 21st, June, he had a stroke. He was confined to a wheelchair and he couldn't speak. He lost the ability to speak. So for the rest of his life, and he died the next year, the rest of his life, he was in a wheelchair unable to speak. All he could do was write. That's when he made his second prediction. After the second prediction, the uh, board of directors of the radio station said, that's enough. Took him off. Which I think they should have done in the first place. But why did it take them so long? But here's the point. God deals severely. Now I'm telling you the facts and you can interpret them the way you want. I'm not, as it says here, the Lord reserves those for judgment. Am I saying that the stroke was God's judgment? Possibly. But I'm leaving that with God. But I will tell you this, he never spoke again. Never after that. And the following year, around January, he was so broken by what he had done. He wrote a letter to all the churches, all the supporters of the radio station, any speaker he had, like Chuck Swindoll or Charles Stanley, any of these that he had 
and the radio programs, and he apologized for misleading. Now, I wish he had gone a step further and told them, here's how I ended up where I was. Be interesting to see his thought process of why he went so far. But he never did, and then he died. I'm telling you that because that happened in my lifetime. That happened nine years ago. That we had a man who put his reasoning above God's. He came out with something new. He did, he did what the prophets of old did. And Peter says, that's what they're going to do among you. And here's a prominent Christian leader who followed in the footsteps of false prophets. And I believe God dealt severely with him. Where does that leave us? How, how can we learn from this? You may say, well, I'm not a false prophet. Yeah, but just like Ananias and Sapphira, you know what the devil's doing? He's putting thoughts in your mind, just like you did the prophets. How do we deal with it? Well, we humbly come before him. You know, you can take each of those three examples. The first one being the angels. How did, why were they kicked out of heaven? Pride. What's the opposite of pride? Humility. You know how we're to act? Take each of these and look at the opposite. How are we to act? Humble before God. God, this is your word. I never want to veer off from what you have stated here. Humility. I subject my intellect, my mind to what you say. Second one. The... Uh, preacher of righteousness who preached for so many years and they rejected what's the opposite of that accept God's word listen when God speaks then the last one the Sodom and Gomorrah living the way they wanted to what's the opposite of that God how do you want me to live how do you want me to live today how can I walk in righteousness today before you you see that's what's going to keep the temptations in check. That's what's going to keep Satan from filling your heart. 